scripture reading tonight is from Nahum, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. If I do not pronounce the words as you would like them, you may do this next time. (laughs) The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before you. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Amen. Well, as I was told the story, a little girl had gone to get glasses for the very first time. And as part of getting the glasses, she had... Uh, detailed instructions on how to care for them, how you clean them, what kind of items you use to clean your glasses so they wouldn't be scratched. She was so excited, she, her dad then took her to a department store, and so she was concerned, so she said, Dad, I'm going to go to the restroom and clean my glasses. He says, that's okay, I'll be waiting right here for you. So she walks across the department store, and just about to go into the restroom when she wants to make sure she's got it right, she yells across the, the department store to her dad and says, Dad, If they're out of toilet paper, can I use my dress? I didn't ask my wife if I could tell that story. I figured I'd got nixed on that one. You know, if you don't know the context of a statement, it can be taken wrong. It can be a little bit embarrassing. We're actually in a study of the minor prophets. And if you don't understand the context of who God is and how he works these prophets might at times give you a little bit of problems. But I'm here to tell you that studying the Old Testament is a blessing in any person in any Christian's life. And it's worth the time and the effort we each would take to dig into God's Word and and know more about what He would have us to know and to understand. While Christians, thankfully, are not under the justification that was found in the Old Testament, and I'm so thankful we aren't, That does not mean that the Old Testament is of no value to us today. It is of great value to all people and to all Christians. It's written for our learning. The Old Testament is a powerful source of comfort and hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. There's great encouragement and hope to be found in the Old Testament. It's written to to admonish us and to to show us the right way to live and to set for us an example. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And so the Old Testament and the minor prophets are part of all those scriptures who are so beneficial to help teach us and instruct us and mold us. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. The words written to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and what you've become convinced of, 
because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's true of every word of the Bible. And it is true, definitely, of the minor prophets that we'd be looking at. This direct message, these major teachings from the minor prophets. Now, I just remind you what Randy taught us this morning. They're only minor because they're short. You know, we have the literary prophets, those prophets who actually wrote down their prophecies. And these are the, the ones that were shorter in length. The minor prophets, a collection of books that you find right at the end of, of your Old Testament starting with Hosea and ending with Malachi. But those that are willing to study these books are going to find their lives enriched because they're going to discover more about God's holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His judgment, His mercy. We'll find our our understanding of how God deals with people and with nations increased. And quite frankly, you will grow to appreciate the Bible's literacy, just the, the literary beauty and how it's a masterpiece in how it's written. And so tonight we look at Nahum. Nahum's name literally means consolation. And so we're going to call it Nahum, God's consolation. It's actually written on the theme of the destruction of Nineveh. And so we're talking about a time about 150 years after uh, Jonah wrote his and made his journey. The northern kingdom of Egypt, uh, 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 the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen to the Syrian Empire. The southern kingdom is is uh, in a state of decline, but Assyria itself is also finds itself in a state of decline. And this message is very simple. Nineveh, you are going to fall. This time there will be no mercy as there was in the time of Jonah. Nineveh is doomed. And so if we just look briefly at the, the three chapters of Nahum, it can be dr- described pretty easily. Chapter 1 just talks about how Nineveh's doom is declared. It starts off with a beautiful psalm or poem talking about God and who He is, His nature and His character and His power. And it continues talking about how there's going to be a complete overthrow of Nineveh. Chapter 2 then goes on and just describes how Nineveh's doom is, is going to be described how the city is going to go under siege and how it's going to be captured and destroyed and how it's going to be utterly destroyed. Verse 6 of chapter 2 talks about how the rivers are opened and the palaces, the gates of the rivers are opened and the palace is dissolved. History tells us that the rivers literally surrounding it overflowed, whether a dam was broken or a flood stage, and washed out a section of the walls, allowing it to be conquered and destroyed. So chapter 2 just describes that destruction. And then chapter 3 talks about how Nineveh's doom is deserved because of her sins. Because she is no better than some of those other sinful cities that she destroyed, like, like a Noamnon in, in Egypt. And how her strength and her wealth are not going to save her this time. No matter how hard she works, her strongholds will fail. Her armies will fail. Her wealth will fail her. And her end has come. And she will be no more. This, let, this prophecy is not written, though, to Nineveh. It's written to God's people. And it's one of consolation. In other words, it's saying, you who have been afflicted by 
by Assyria, by, by Nineveh. There is justice coming. And you should find consolation and comfort in that. Just like all should realize that we have a just judge. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about the parable of the persistent widow? Who went before a judge who, uh, Luke 18, 2 says, He cared not for men or for God. He didn't care what God thought. He didn't care what men thought. And yet she goes to him and she's persistent in that. In Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, we read, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the book of of Nahum is basically a prophecy of how judgment's going to come to a foreign nation. And it will come. And at the beginning of his prophecy, Nahum, though, goes and pulls his prophecy and what he's about to write, based it on the character of God and the nature of God. So we want to focus our time in verses 2 through 8 as we think about this God of consolation, this poem of praising God for who he is. So turn back over to Nahum chapter 1. Let's look at verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. There are times in all of our lives where we wonder if the wicked are ever going to receive judgment. I mean, you can look out just like I can. And you can see good people who are having bad things happen to them. Who are treated in unjust ways. And right next to them you see a person who is by no means even attempting or trying to do what's right. In fact, they're pretty proud of how they're not living a right way. And yet, things seem to be going better for them. You know, they seem more popular. They have a better position in this world. They have more prestige or, or power than those Christians who live beside them. In fact, they almost flaunt it. Why should I be a Christian? Why should I want your lifestyle? When I have so much and you seem to have so little. See, there are sinners in this world who compare themselves to us and say, I've got it so much better than you. Why would I want what you have? And they flaunt it in our face. But Nahum is saying to the people of his day, and I believe to us in our day, that God's vengeance is certain. Those who disobey God and flaunt their evil in front of God will pay. The day will come when they will be judged for their sins. A day of reckoning is waiting for each of us. And that day is coming when their sins will be judged. We've heard it preached so much that God is a God of love, and He is, that we've almost forgotten that He's also a God of wrath and a God of judgment. And the guilty will pay for their sins. They will not go unpunished. God is a God of love. But God is also a God of wrath. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 reminds us, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Do not be misled. Wickedness will not go unpunished. The day of God's wrath is coming. Back to Nahum chapter 1 verse 2. We also see that God is a jealous God. God acts in in vengeance because He is a jealous God. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. And we need to understand that 
God is not jealous just like human beings are jealous. I have to tell you, when, when I think of jealousy, of God being jealous, I think of some relationships I found myself in in junior high and high school and early on in my life. And if you've ever been in a relationship where the, the person that you're in relationship was jealous, it's an unattractive and unloving and, 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 and characteristic to have. But do not equate that kind of jealousness to God. God is jealous in a way that, it, that humans are not. God is jealous because He created the world. He created you and He created me. And He created me to, to enter into relationship with Him. And He expects His people, He expects me to live in a proper relationship with Him. The Bible often views God as a, a husband of Israel and as a bride of Christ. And, and that very much is applied to, to us today. And in a marriage relationship, the husband has every right, the spouse has every right to demand that their spouse be faithful, to be loyal, to be loyal to them. In other words, all other lovers are to be left behind. And because of God and His purity, that's what He expects of us. Because He is faithful to us, He expects that from us to Him. And we're to leave all other lovers and this world behind and be faithful only to Him. God rightly demands first priority in our lives. So whenever God brings judgment to those who are unfaithful to their vows, He is justified. Because He kept His part of the covenant relationship. He has been faithful to us. And that was true of Nineveh. <laughs> he sent Jonah and they repented. And yet they turned away from him. In Exodus chapter 20, we read about the, the Ten Commandments. In verse 4, we're told not to worship idols. In verse 5, God tells us why. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He does not want any rival for his love for us. Our relation to God must, relationship to God must be a top priority. He expects us to be completely faithful to Him and loyal to Him. And anything less is neither accepted nor will it be tolerated by God. God is a jealous God. Verse 3, we also find out that He is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Sometimes I'm afraid we're a little guilty of taking advantage of God because He is slow to anger. As a child, you, you learned your parents' limits very fast. You can almost read their mannerisms and their actions. And you knew how to push them to the limit, and on occasion, you purposely pushed them beyond. And then there were times where you knew when they were there and you just stepped back away. Sometimes I'm afraid that we take advantage of God because He's slow to anger. So, and we think we can get away with something. We can get away with something easier. But just imagine if, if we were to die or tragedies tragedy should take place in our lives, what then? What if we were trusting on God to be slow in anger and, and tragedy strikes? I don't know about you, but I thank God that He is patient with sinners as well as with Christians. 
And I can assure you, I would not be here today if God was a hot-tempered God. (laughs) I would have been taken out long ago. But God is slow to anger. He's a loving God. He's patient with us. God's giving us every opportunity, every chance to make things right with Him. Just because you or I or somebody else you know seems to have gotten away with something they've done wrong in their life and not received judgment for it, does not mean that they have. Listen, unless you and I seek forgiveness and get under the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ, we will be judged for our sins. You think you got away with it, but you did not. God's saying to His people in Nahum, you think they got away with it, but they did not. Listen, just because a lot of time might have passed does not mean that that sin has gone away. You are held accountable for it unless you come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. And aren't you thankful for that blood? I mean, just look at Nineveh and see how merciful God was to them. They were doomed to judgment, but they, God sent Jonah and they, and, who brought a message of repentance and they responded to that. But since then they went back to where they were and now God's patience has run out. Oh, may God's patience never run out for us. God is slow to anger and great in power. You know, really, I think that word and, as I studied this passage, it's better translated but. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. Don't miss the power of God. And so Nahum starts to show the effects of God's great power. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is one that can provide every need that any individual might have or any church might have, but He is also the one that judges. His power is beyond our comprehension. Nahum 1.6 Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before Him. He asked a question. Who can withstand? It's rhetorical, because the answer, you know, is no one. No one can. No opponent, no enemy in all the universe can ever succeed against God and His purpose. Satan and all of his powers and forces, everything that he can bring against us, is not able to overcome God. Amen? (laughs) And you nor I can withstand God with sin in our lives. But finally, in verses 7 and 8, Nahum brings this poem to a close. And he shows how God wants to have a relationship with his friends. But he also shows his relationship to his enemies. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. So as you look at these two verses, I just simply ask you, which side are you on? With God, are you friend or are you foe? Either we find refuge in God, which doesn't that sound wonderful, or we find judgment in God. The choice is yours. You can either trust in God or we can find ourselves as one of his enemies. Either we are for him or we are against him.
And let me tell you, it's not just what you say that counts. Your words are loud, but your actions speak louder. Our words, our mouth needs to proclaim our faithfulness, and our actions need to do so as well. Verse 7, that beautiful passage. Nahum points out three very remarkable factors about God and His relationship with His people. First of all, he says, The Lord is good. God is good. And His goodness is reflected in so many ways. You see it. For one, He's just faithful to keep all of His promises to us. Don't you love to read the Bible and read of His promises? If you're like me, I find that many of the verses that I've memorized in my life are, are the promises that He's made. And He's faithful to keep all of those promises. He's merciful to us. He gives us what we need. God has given us so many wonderful and good gifts. The Lord truly is good. It goes on and says, He's a refuge in times of trouble. The image here is a fort, uh, the image of a, a fortress or a stronghold for the soldier. So when he's inside the fortress, he's safe from the enemy attack. But to leave its it security is to, to face defeat. We live in a time of constant pressure and temptation. And don't you feel attacked by the enemy all the time? But in God, those of us who have a right relationship with Him find safety, a refuge, protection. I mean, just don't you even feel a little bit safe right now inside these walls? I mean, you're here with fellow Christians. For many of us, it's a safe place for us together. And that's good. You, you sure should feel that kind of safety and refuge. But what makes you feel safe here does not dwell here alone. What makes you feel safe here goes with you. And it's not me going with you. It's not the person sitting by you going with you wherever you go. It is a God who does not live in temples made with human hands. And may you sense His presence and His power every day just as you do right now. And remember, God does not promise His people freedom from difficulties in this world. Instead, He promises His presence and sufficiency in the midst of those difficulties. So don't think that once you go out from here that you're not going to be attacked. The attacks will come. External situations might even be devastating in your life. But there is an inner spiritual reality of knowing that God is your God and that He is a place of refuge for you that walks with you wherever you go. Now that's pretty powerful, isn't it? He goes on and says he cares for those who trust in him. God cares for you. In an intimate way, you can be sure that he cares about whatever's happening for you, happening with you and for you and in your lives. And he will always be there as a refuge, as a provider, one who loves you and cares for those who trust in him. So would you trust in him? Would you walk this week in complete trust in him? Would you trust Him enough to let Him be your refuge? Because you have a choice. You can be friend or foe. And don't miss the relationship He has with His enemies. It's found in verse 8. But with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue His foes into darkness. Total destruction for the enemies of God. An overwhelming flood. Darkness. 
Those words represent confusion, hopelessness, utter devastation on Judgment Day. Once again, let me emphasize that those who reject God will receive His judgment. I mean, I don't know how to say it any, any stronger. When Jesus gave our, us a commission to go into the world, He says, I want you to say good news to the world. You remember in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16? He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. You see the good news? The good news is framed because it was all bad news before. But don't miss the last part of that verse. Condemnation is certain. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. But there's good news. There's great news. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Salvation is possible. And that's true for each of us. And so as we kind of wrap up our thoughts for tonight, I just have three concluding thoughts. And I hope that you'll personalize the message of Nahum in your own life. But let me give you three directions to think. First of all, every action has a consequence. You know that. As, as a parent, uh, well, actually, my wife, as a wonderful parent, taught my kids the words consequence very early in their life. I thought, that's an awful lot, big word to, to teach a child, but it's a good word to teach them. And she oftentimes would discipline them by teaching them consequence. She made sure that she would warn them ahead of time. If you do this, this is the consequence, and it is your choice. And I would remind you that God has taught us that every action has a consequence. And even though the world might deceive us and say that it doesn't, or it might say happiness comes from sin, and you observe that it truly does, remember, God has told us there's a consequence for sin. And while happiness might immediately follow the sin, there is another consequence that comes. But the second thing I'd remind you and have you consider is God takes care of the consequences. And here's where I want you to take great consolation or great comfort in this thought. It is not your job to punish others. And so when you look around and you see in this life that life isn't fair, would you take great comfort in knowing that it's not your job to take care of the consequences? God's going to do this. Now, there are things that we need to do, and we need to live in a Christian way in this world. But there are just some things that are out of our control, but none of them are out of God's control. And God will take care of the consequences. And if you find yourself as a foe of God, destined for His wrath, I would simply remind you that God would love to take care of that consequence. He has provided His Son who has already paid the debt that you couldn't pay. And won't you come under the blood of Jesus Christ by giving your life to Him and being baptized so that He can take care of that consequence? God took care of the consequence for you. And the third observation I'd make is I should be concerned with my consequences and not anybody else's. Now, I'm not trying to tell you don't go take the message. I already proclaimed the great commission that God gave us. 
I mean, we need to take the good news of Jesus to this world. But I'm talking about things that stop us from living our lives because of what others have done for us. And you need to take responsibility for your own life. Nineveh repented once, but fell back. And therefore, the wrath of God is just. For many of us as Christians who claimed his name, I'm afraid we might have fallen back as well. And the wrath of God is just. But I pray that you will find yourself in a friendly relationship with God. That you would go back to him. Go to God for forgiveness. And go to God for comfort. He desires to forgive you. And to save you. Friend or foe. Won't you take the step that leads you to Jesus tonight? We can help you. Won't you come right now as we stand together and sing?